If you have your own Bible and it's not an old Schofield reference Bible, you have to learn their own page numbers, but that's okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll start in verse 1. I hope you have my little notes. I've been making them available in the foyer. If you're online only and you want the notes, uh, get a hold of me. Uh, you can email info at floridabiblecollege.us if you want to, and I'll get that email and respond if you want some notes for each of these Sunday school lessons. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let's pray together and we'll get started. Father in heaven, as we open your word this Sunday morning, this Lord's Day morning, we pray that we will have a mind that is open to hear your word and be cleared of the distractions of the world around us. We'll We'll have your help in focusing our attention on your word, and the teacher would be the Holy Spirit, and I'd get out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin here with verses, I suppose, 1 and 2. Therefore, seeing we have received this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's a good way to start. He begins by saying, we have this ministry. I, I have called today's lesson, we have this treasure because it says that toward the end of the chapter, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This ministry, this treasure, this gospel of Christ, we have it. It isn't our doing. It isn't something we are good enough to do or well enough to present, but it's something entrusted to us, and we have it. And Paul says, because we have this ministry, we faint not. And then he goes on about how he pre pre presents his ministry, if you will. But I just want to think about this for a moment. What would you, if you were thinking about it, say that the Apostle Paul was the very best at? What was his greatest strength? He was strong in many areas. What was his greatest strength? Was it uh, caring for the physical needs of the churches? Was it I know he spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians correcting the church in, in Corinth, but my first answer, without thinking deeply about it, is he was great at sharing the gospel. He was bold and free and spoke plainly to people the, the way they needed to hear. When he talked to Jewish people, he told them about Jesus being the Christ, fulfilling all the prophecies. When he talked to people that did not know the Bible, he led them through from the creation all the way to God being the one that has sent his son who's going to be the judge in all the world. He was an evangelist. He never called himself, as Peter does, an elder. He calls himself a deacon over and over again, a servant or a slave of the churches here and there. We know because of the effort he put into 1 Corinthians that he had to take care of the churches that he had started. He had to go around and lead them out of their problems, but that was his burden, not what he was best at. What he was best at was sharing the gospel. 
We had the blessing of Dr. Yankee Arnold here as our pastor in this church for something like 11 years, and before him, Hank Lindstrom. Uh, we've had marvelous pastoral care, but I don't know if you'd agree with me of this about Hank, but certainly about Dr. Arnold Yankee, what he's best at is sharing the gospel. Dr. Lindstrom was a marvelous Bible teacher. Maybe that was his greatest strength, but I know he was also, you could say, his, he's one of the best soul winners you've ever had contact with. If you were around Hank Lindstrom, you learned about how he shared the gospel with people because he did it like Yankee does it all the time. And yet they cared for this church for years and years and years. I think that's Paul here. Paul has and wants to impress upon the Corinthians in these two letters and in others to other people that his ministry, this great ministry of his, is sharing the gospel, making it known. I've received mercy. I'm going to tell you how to receive mercy. And at the end of verse 1, he says this little thing. He says, we faint not. You think he was ever tired? Think about all the things he had to drag them through in 1 Corinthians, all the correction that he had to do. Well, that would weary you, wouldn't it? Would you like to be the pastor of a church where you had to first tell them stop being schismatic and breaking into little groups, and then you had to tell them to rebuke the guy that's in open sin, sexual sin, and he had to tell them stop getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, and, and so many things in 1 Corinthians, and he had to do it, but that wasn't his greatest strength. He was an evangelist, in my opinion. And he says to them in Corinth, because he wants them to be like him, we, you and I, have received mercy, so we faint not. He says, you guys get with me on this. Don't faint. Don't quit. Don't get tired. There's several places in the New Testament that make reference to this idea of don't quit, don't faint. Jesus told a parable. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 1. It's page 1083 in your Schofield Bible. Luke 8, 1, page 1083. And although there are quite a number of parables, it's not it. There. Uh, there. That's the wrong reference, and I'm going to get to the right reference in just a moment. I don't usually make mistakes. I did once back in 1962. <laughs> I taught high school for five years in a Christian school, and one day I walked into class and somebody asked a question, and I said, I don't know, and two of the boys jumped up and started whooping and hollering and said, Mr. Gilbert said he didn't know. Mr. Gilbert said he didn't know. <laughs> they made a big deal about it, like I always know. I'm sorry, I have to search this just for a moment here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Find a keyboard here. Let's see if this will work. No. Where's a keyboard? That's a keyboard. This is one of the things you can do with the E sword. You can search for a specific phrase and it will lead you to the verse reference that you thought you had right and you didn't. There it is. It's Luke 18.1. If you go there now, I'm, I apologize for getting the reference wrong. My type, 
typing skills have failed me. Luke 18, 1, which you can probably find right a few chapters after Luke 8. And I like this. It's on page 1101, 1100, 1100. Luke 18.1 says this. He says, He spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, he goes through a parable. But I, have a, I know what the point of this parable is. Don't you? Why did he tell them this parable? Because he wanted men always to pray and not to faint. <laughs> you can go through the parable and figure, figure out how you understand that meaning from it, but you don't have to worry about getting the meaning right. He taught this parable to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Jesus said, don't quit, don't faint, don't give up. Another passage on this point is something you're very familiar with, Galatians 6, verse 9 if I got the page number right, page 1247, here Paul teaches the churches in the region of Galatia. He said, let us, all of us, you and me together both, let us not be weary in well-doing. Don't get tired of doing what you're supposed to do. In due season we shall reap if we faint not. Don't quit. Don't get tired. If you're supposed to be doing something, keep on doing it. This idea of not faint. In Ephesians 3.13, Paul also tells the church in Ephesus, he says, look, this, this page 1252, um, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you. He says, you've heard how bad things are going for me, and it's because it's on your behalf. It's your, don't quit because you heard things went bad, bad. Paul's having a hard time, and it's because of us. I think we should quit. No, don't quit. He said, don't. Don't do it. Don't quit. Don't quit. One last one here, Second Thessalonians 3.13. To the little church in Thessalonica, Paul said, You, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Don't quit. Doing what's right, keep on. Keep on. Back in our chapter, Paul said, We've received mercy. We faint not. It's because of what Jesus had to do what Jesus chose to do by the love of God so that we could receive mercy. And because of him and his grace and his example, we don't quit. At the beginning of John chapter 4, we're not going there right now, but it says that Jesus was of a mind to go to Galilee. And then it says, and he must needs go through Samaria. You may recall that when we taught the Gospel of John, we pointed out it, that's not the only road to Galilee from Jerusalem. He could have gone the way the good Jews went, which is avoiding Samaria, but he had to go for some moral reason through Samaria. I think he knew God had people in Samaria that he was going to reach, starting with one wicked little woman at the well with her water bucket who'd been been bad with most of the men of the town. He had to go that way. As we have received mercy, we faint not. We follow his example. In verse 2, we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 
We've given, we've given up some things. Paul said, this is the way of it. Don't go back to the old way where you get what you can get, be all that you can be, stomp on the person below you. He says, no, we've renounced. What have we renounced? The hidden things. That's the word kruptos. It's on the notes. That's where we get our word cryptic from. Don't be sneaky, you know? Uh, the things of dishonesty, that's a word that refers to shame or disgrace. Yeah. Wait, let me get me my loaded dice and we'll have a little game here. Not walking in craftiness. Um, the notes remind you, it says it literally means all working. And I think the idea of that is our, our expression, anything goes. Whatever you have to do to get it done. And there's a good sense of that, but this anything goes, uh, some people refer to Jesuit casuistry, that the end justifies the means. In the Islamic religion, there is a theology that I don't agree with at all that says there's such a thing as sacred lying to accomplish the purposes of who they call Allah. That's just wrong craftiness. Anything goes, and then it says not handling, especially not handling the Word of God deceitfully. Deceitfully, that's a word that refers to snaring something. You want to lay a, a snare, a net on the ground, and when the bird walks over it, you give it a tug, and there you've caught yourself a bird. Or another kind of, you know, in the cartoons, it was a box with a prop under it, and a rabbit walked in, and you pulled the prop out. I don't know that that works very well, but snaring something. We don't use the Bible to hook people in. There's a real truth that the name Jesus means Jehovah Yeshua. That's the Hebrew combination that is shortened to make the name Joshua or Jesus. Jehovah is the personal name of God, the great I Am, the self-existent one. And Yeshua is a Hebrew word that means Savior, Deliverer. And so when you say Jesus, you're saying Jehovah is the Savior. And when you're thinking about Jesus who died on the cross, you're saying Jesus is Jehovah the Savior. Just by using his name, you're agreeing with that if you understood that. That's what it means to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's foolish to be talking to somebody who doesn't believe and say, see, here's the name Jesus. It is Jehovah Yeshua. It means Jehovah is the Savior. So if you believe in the name, if, and you just, yeah, I believe Jesus is Joshua, is Jehovah is just to hear them say the words that you just told them were the dictionary meanings of the words doesn't mean they're believing in Jesus for salvation. That would be to trick them into saying a certain set of words, but saying a certain set of words doesn't save you. You're not saved by repeating a, uh, uh, a prayer. or You're not saved by a set of words. You're saved by faith in Jesus, by believing in him, by taking him at his word, believing his promise. And so we don't want to do tricky things like that. Paul goes on in the rest of verse 2, and he says, it's by manifestation of the truth. And I've talked about this word manifest before, but if you come up to the back of the truck and say, let me see your manifest, and you look at it, that's what's supposed to be in the truck. And you open the door, and you can check the contents. You go to an airplane and say, is so-and-so on the airplane? Let me see your passenger manifest. You look at the list of names, and... There you know who's on the airplane or supposed to be. Manifestation is what is making known, just making known what's in there. And we're manifesting the truth. 
That's the way we share the gospel. Not by trickery, not by dishonesty, not by craftiness, not by hidden things, not by deceit. Manifestation of the truth. And when you go that way, why then people can't say, you're just a trickster. You're, you're that sneak. Come in. By manifesting the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You might recall that Paul in Corinth started, where, where did he always start when he went to a town? If he could. Went to the synagogue. He went to the synagogue to talk to the Jews. He shared the gospel with them. The chief ruler believed in him. And they threw Paul out of the synagogue and the chief ruler and got themselves a new chief ruler. But by manifestation of the truth, commending themselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We're trying to please others by manifesting the truth. We're trying to please God by manifesting the truth. But when you please God, the right result would be people paying attention to your message. Verse 3, he says, but here's the problem. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. There's a good word. I want to read verse 4 as well. In whom, in those people that are lost, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. There are people who are lost. One of my favorite teachers, Dr. Dick Seymour, explained this idea. He says it doesn't mean you're immoral. It doesn't mean you're wicked and it just means you, you're lost. He said, if I came upon a man in the middle of the forest, or the, in Florida, the swamp, <laughs> and said, sir, how'd you, how'd you get here? He says, I don't know. I came from over there somewhere. He says, where'd you come from? I, I'm not really sure. Where are you going? I'd like to get out of here, but I'm not sure which way to... He said, mister, I'm not trying to say anything bad about you, but if, if I wasn't... As, as foolish as I am, I'd think you are lost. It just means you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you are, and you don't know where you're going. Think about people who are spiritually lost. Most of them don't know where they came from. They think that mama's great-great-great-grandpa was a monkey or something along those lines. They don't know how mankind got here, let alone themselves. They don't know where they are, which is to say they are separated from God because they're, we're all sinners, we are all sinners. They're separated from God because they have not accepted the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ, and they don't know where they're going, which is how we usually start the conversation. Do you know when you die where you'll go? Do you know where you'll go? If they don't know where they came from, where they are, and where they're going, lost is a good word to describe them. And the gospel, if it's hid, is hidden to the lost. They don't see it yet. And verse 4 says, the God of this world, that's not Jehovah, that's not Jesus, that's the adversary. He's in charge of this world for now by God's permission. He has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. It doesn't say he's gotten them into sin and they just won't turn from their sin. It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say anything about the way they live. It has to do with their mind. How are lost people lost? They're lost because they haven't believed. It's a thing that happens in your mind. 
he's blinded their minds so they can't see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Christ, the image of God. That light won't shine to them because their eyes are blinded. Their minds are blinded. So the only hope we have of getting through that blindness, blinded minds, that's where belief happens. They believe not. I would take you just for a second to remind you about this God of this world, dude. If I can find my note here. Or not. There it is. Jesus, just before he went privately with his disciples to the Last Supper, the last time he spoke in public, there was a voice from heaven. There was a voice from heaven. He said, Father, glorify thy name. And the voice from heaven said, I have glorified it and will glorify it. Some of the people that stood by heard it said it was thundered. Some of them said an angel spoke to him. Jesus said, it came for your sakes. And then he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, referring to the absolute defeat of Satan as the adversary when he completed his death on the cross for us. So the God of this world, the prince of this world, is defeated, and yet he's still fighting. You say, why is that? Doesn't He knows the Bible, right? He knows at the end of, Gen- of Revelation he's thrown into the lake of fire. Why does he keep doing what he's doing? I tell you a secret. The devil is insane. He's as crazy as a loon. You can't figure out a why for what he does other than he opposes everything God wants to do. And he, I, he just doesn't think about getting away with it. He just keeps trying He's blinded the minds of them that believe not. That is such a plain statement about what the ones that believe not need to do. They need to open their eyes, their spiritual eyes, the eyes of the mind, so they can see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. He's the image of God, and that light could shine unto them. Turning a page in the notes. It's the gospel of Christ. What do you say it's the gospel of Christ? It's the gospel he preached. The gospel, according to John, records many times Jesus sharing this saving message. And it says he is the image of God. Again, we're talking about this idea of manifestation. What was Jesus? Why, he's the man born of the Virgin Mary, but he's God taking on human flesh. He's the image of God. The Old Testament says repeatedly, you can't see God. Nobody can look on God and live. Moses said, can't I look at you? God says, I'll put you in this cleft of the rock. I'll go by. I'll take my hand off after I'm past. You can see the kind of the backside of the image, but you can't look at my face. You can't do it and live. But Jesus was the image of God. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it says that he's the express image of his person. He's the exact representation. If you want to see God, you just look at Jesus. He's the image of God. He's the making visible of God. And he is what the gospel is all about. It's all about him. He is the sum of the gospel. He's the substance of the gospel. His becoming a man, his death on the cross, his resurrection, all that makes it make sense. He is the gospel. He's the message. He's the one we believe in. Romans 1.16. I have a bookmark, but I didn't push the bookmark this time for no reason whatsoever. Romans 1.16, very familiar verse to us here. We recite this 
every Sunday morning. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The only thing a person who is an unbeliever, who is lost, can do is believe. When they believe in Jesus, the gospel of Christ breaks their blindness and grants he's already taken the penalty of their sin and risen again to show that there is eternal life available and he gives them the gift of salvation he puts to their account on the books of heaven the righteousness of God himself he gives them eternal life and the promise that they can know it the promise that they can know it the gospel is good news delivered we let the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, the image of God, shine unto them. How do we do it? Verse 5 says, we preach. And we don't preach ourselves, Paul says. I'm not out here saying, Paul. I'm here saying, Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ, the anointed one, the special one promised all through and through the Old Testament. The Jews knew what that meant. They used the word Mashiach or Messiah in the Hebrew reading, but it was the one that they expected because God had promised him. Jesus, Jehovah Yeshua, the Lord, the Kurios in the New Testament, the Adonai in the Old Testament, he is God himself, the Savior, the promised deliverer, not only of Israel, but of all mankind who would believe in him. And that's the message, that's the gospel that will break through the blindness. <coughs> And he says, we also preach ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. You need to know we'll do whatever we can to let this gospel message get through to more and more of the lost. Verse 6 makes a reference back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Look at it. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Do you think Paul believed Genesis? I think he said that's history. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness shined in our hearts. He broke through the darkness with his light to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. But Paul uses that reference, what happened when God did the creation, to say, he shined in our hearts. You know, there are a number of different words used in the New Testament to refer to the various parts of man. The physical is called the body. Um, the immaterial part of man is sometimes called soul, sometimes called spirit. But you know that the word that is used most often to refer to the immaterial part of man is heart. Sometimes it means the mind, sometimes it means the soul, sometimes the spirit. The soul and spirit are not always discernibly separable. But when your soul and spirit get separated from your body, well, that, that we know what that means. That's called physical death. And in any case, he shined in our hearts. He shined in the way we think, the way we know. He broke through so that we would believe we would know the knowledge of the glory of God, the knowledge that's knowing is done in your mind in the face of Jesus Christ. 
So don't be put off by the word heart. Don't say, let Jesus into your heart. That's confusion. But do say, God is telling you in these words of the gospel, believe in Jesus. You'll know God by believing in Jesus. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the glory of God. He shined in our hearts. He's the light shining out of us. When Paul has the light of God shining in his heart, others can see it. And I think this is not just saying God broke through the blindness. He thinks this is saying we should have in us, once we believe, a well of water springing up into everlasting life, like the woman at the well went back to town and talked to the men like Jesus gave invitation at the end of the great feast in Jerusalem, he that believeth in me, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, the spake he of the Spirit. When you believe, you're supposed to have the Holy Spirit of God coming out to share the gospel, to give the light. We're the givers of the light. He shined in. We're the mirror. We're the fired up light source to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he says, we have this treasure. We have this, this glorious knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, this gospel. We have it. It does say in earthen vessels. We're going to go on to this important thought, but we have this treasure. Nobody else does. God does not, generally speaking, use angels. He could. He doesn't. He said, no, I'll give this to you. You've been put in trust with the gospel. Paul says, as we've been put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. We have this treasure. We have it in earthen vessels. Now Paul's going to refer to his own human experience and the troubles he had. Nobody knows the troubles. Yeah, he had them. Because he says, the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. I don't want you to think I'm so great. I started churches everywhere. I'm just the boss. He says, no, earthen vessels. There's vessels of clay, earthen vessels. We are fragile. We're made of dirt. Somebody was making fun of, uh, I, this is an ancient story that I didn't write all down here, but they were having a wine time and the woman brought out the wine in an earthen bottle and the guest said huh, if you were as wealthy as I was you'd use silver but you know if you put wine in silver containers it spoils right away some things have to be in earthen vessels and we have this treasure of the gospel of Christ in earthen vessels so when somebody does believe in Jesus when there is the power of God Shones, shines through and they believe it's God's power it's not us we're just sharing spreading shining forth the light and Paul goes into his testimony of how much a bad earthen vessel he was he says we're verse 8 we're troubled on every side but not distressed we're perplexed but not in despair we're persecuted but not forsaken we're cast down but not destroyed 
we're always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. He says, my life is an illustration that Jesus really was a man and he really did die on the cross. And then he says that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies as I know I have eternal life. Jesus got up from the dead. That's the life of Jesus that we preach. The resurrection life. You can compare those words in verses 8 through 15. Troubled but not distressed is like pressed but not hemmed in, not completely pinched. Perplexed, there's no way out, but we're not in despair. We're not utterly perplexed. Persecuted, well, we're being pursued. Somebody's after us, but we're not forsaken. We're not left in the power of the enemy. We're cast down, but we're not destroyed. Cast down means cast down. Destroyed is an interesting word. It's the word translated in John 3.16, perish. It means absolutely destroyed, and we're not perishing. This is always bearing about in the body the dying, that the life, that's the gospel message. We which live, going on with this contrast here, we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. In chapter 5, he's going to talk about Jesus should be alive, but he died. We should be dead, and, he's a, and we're alive. We which live, beginning to lead into that comparison, we're delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. As we live delivered unto death and yet not dying, Jesus' life is made known by our gospel message. Verse 12, he says, death works in us, but life in you. Life in you. You, Corinthians, you reap the benefit, you reap the advantage of all this trouble we're going through. And so we're going to read now verse 13. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Paul remembers a psalm. Psalm 116, where the psalmist, David, I think, said, I believe, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. This psalm is a special psalm. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he's inclined my ear unto me. Therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compassed me. The pains of hell got hold upon me. I found sorrow and tro trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low and he helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Look at verse 15. How, care, how wonderful this is to have to share at someone's funeral. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. 
O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. I'm not a slave anymore. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord house, in the midst of the O Jerusalem. Praise ye, the Lord. Psalm 116, you should remember Psalm 116. It is a wonderful psalm. And Paul remembered it here in verse 13, don't you think? He says, we having the same spirit of faith according as it is written. And then he quotes that little fragment out of Psalm 116. I believed, and therefore have I spoken. He says, that's just like us. We also believe, and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. The first word in verse 14 is knowing. Do you know? You know? Do you know that you know? You have eternal life? He which raised up the Lord Jesus, he's talking about the power of God in the resurrection, shall raise up us also by Jesus, which is what Paul called the hope of the promise. It, one of his defenses, I've got to flip over here to Acts chapter 16. Verse 6. No, it's not 16, verse 6. I typed it wrongly again. Well, fiddle. The hope of the promise. I'm going to look it up because I really wanted to give you the right reference here. Just a second. Isn't this easier than lugging a Strong's concordance around? Well, let me make it a small. Or let me just give up. I'm sorry, what I was thinking of that I can't find right now in one of Paul's defenses before his accusers said, I'm a Pharisee of the resurrection is why I'm called in question this day. And so the Pharisees among his accusers all of a sudden got happy and the Sadducees got mad and they started fussing with each other and he was allowed escape from that immediate pressure. I'm sorry, I don't... I, I apparently have the wrong phrase here because I can't find it. The hope of his of the oh the hope of the promise. I can I can find it. I just typed it badly. I have time. Hope. O p e space o f t h e. There it 
is. Acts 26, verse 6. He says, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. He used that as his defense. Once again, I'm just off by the chapter number, 26, 6. And verse 8, he says, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Paul called the resurrection, promised to the Jews, the hope of the promise, the hope of God's promise. So we go on again here toward the end of our chapter, verse 15. All things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. He says it's all, Corinthians, it's all about you and any others that have received God's grace. All things are for your sakes. What I go through, the abundant grace through the thanksgiving of many may redound to the glory of God. What does that mean, redound? It's that word that means superabound, superabound. We don't have words like that. We say, that's not really a word, is it? Oh, yeah, superabound, superabound. You don't believe me, so I'm going to put it in here. <laughs> you might believe me, I don't know. Parasuo, parasuo to superabound. That's the dictionary definition of it. Be in excess, excel, oh, yeah, superabound. Exceed the fixed number or measure, be left over above it pouring over the cup, it's overflowing, superabound to the glory of God. Verse 16. Oh, there's a little rewording of it here. Maybe this is just saying the grace being multiplied through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound. And then verses 16 through 18, we finish up the chapter. We'll just read it here. For which cause we faint not. We just don't quit, like we said earlier in the lesson. Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man, the heart, the mind, the spirit, the soul, is renewed day by day. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's that, there's that superabundant word again there, far more exceeding and eternal. That's a big superlative expression, far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. And we don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. You look at the stuff you are involved in now, and you'll get tired, and you'll quit, and you'll faint. But we look at the things which are not seen. We look on to heaven. The things which are seen are temporal. They're temporary. They're limited to this time. The things which are not seen are eternal. If you focus, as the book of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the race that is set before us, all the way to the end, look to the eternal things. Those heroes of the Old Testament described in Hebrews chapter 11 looked for future things, things they didn't get while they were here. They looked for a city. They looked for a kingdom. They looked for heavenly things. And Paul says we should be like that. Don't look at the things that are seen. 
Don't be looking at that temple of Aphrodite up there on the mountain. Look at the things which are not seen. Look at Jesus. The things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. I've been in the habit here of finishing with chapter 5, verse 19, which explains the gospel. God was in Christ, in the cross of Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. He took the trespasses. He took the sins on himself. And he's done it, and so he's not imputing their trespasses unto them anymore, but he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God took the sin out of the way. We need to tell people about it. Here it is. He made him, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And now, people, if you're listening and you haven't, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. Believe in Jesus. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And this lesson that I feel is preparatory to chapter 5, getting our minds in the right place, not looking at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen, understanding the gospel's a treasure, and we have it. We have it in earthen vessels. We have broken down, failing lives. And yet it is by our shining forth the light of God in the face of Jesus that lost people come to believe. Help us to be bold as was Paul in presenting the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless.